Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Pikimai kakimai and welcome. From RNZ National, here's our changing world. It's Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori, so what better place to visit than Wairo Bar on the Marlborough coastline? It's arguably one of New Zealand's most important archaeological sites, but it is also an inspiring example of collaboration between iwi and scientists. Back in 1939, 13-year-old schoolboy Jim Isles made the first discoveries at Wairo Bar. He found more eggs, necklaces, a sperm whale tooth, and the remains of people who may have been among the first to step ashore in Aotearoa. For decades, the remains were stored at Canterbury Museum, until in 2009, the Tangata Whenua, the Rangitana Iwi, were able to return their tipuna to their final resting place at Waraoba. But before the Koiwi Tangata were reinterred, Iwi agreed that scientists could study the bones and take samples for genetic analysis and that archaeologists could investigate the site to uncover one of New Zealand's first settlements. I joined iwi members and scientists to find out what we now know about the people and their place at Waraoba. One of the interesting parts in this ritual is we say the karakia to make us all safe and then we go across one of the most powerful entities in the Māori spiritual world, fresh water. And so we're double safe. So this mound here is um, burials one to seven, and uh, so we've repatriated these people here to this to their final resting place after they were taken originally in 1943 or 44. Um, so it's as close to the site as was ploughed up and they were taken from. What we know from the, the original burials, each of those burials had a Maori egg with them. They had their jewellery, their uh, reels and a sperm whale tooth, adzes. We're standing at the final resting place of the woman who's come to be known as Auntie. 
She was one of the first um, people that were found here by Jim Isles. She's been um, reburied here. Her, her head in particular is at the spot where there's a large stone and there's a whale vertebra marking the spot as well. How much do we know about her? You've had a good look at her skeletal remains? Yeah, so we um, know that she was she was the only woman from the, the group of the first people, the only woman that was found. Um, when she died, she was probably no older than 30. And during her childhood, when her teeth were developing, there was some period of stress, which may have been infection or it may have been food scarcity. And also there's evidence of the fact that she had iron deficiency at some point as well, anemia. But she survived that, so she was strong and healthy woman, and she survived that period of stress of whatever it was during her childhood. I only had her head to examine, so I don't know much more about her, like how tall she was or anything. But she was very gracile, she had very fine features, and from the work of Dr Susan Hayes for the uh, facial reconstruction that was done, we know that she was also very beautiful. (laughs) And we know that that she ate a a diet that was fibrous and gritty, and we also know that she probably wasn't actually born here. So from the diet she had in her childhood, you can tell that she'd come from somewhere else? Yes, so her teeth had taken up a geological signature which was very different to here. So it's likely that she was among the first group of people that came and actually settled in this area. We know from her genetics that she was Polynesian, uh, which is what we would have expected anyway from her morphology. But we also know that she had her own uh, unique haplotype and was different to some of the other people where the genetic evidence has been found. I'm interested in the early ornaments, um, jewellery I suppose if you like. Many of the styles are very similar to what is present in Eastern Polynesia. Not exactly the same, we can't figure out where people came from based on any of the artefacts that are found on the bar. But it's particularly interesting to us because it is one of the earliest sites that we have in New Zealand and there are a large number of ornaments on the site. There's about 1,400 artefacts from the site that we know of, uh, and they range from small segments of bird bone shaft, and just so very plain beads, and then larger shaped reels, um, which look like cotton reels, to whale teeth that have got holes drilled in the top of them, uh, able to be worn as pendants and various other styles, some of which occur in Eastern Polynesia, some of them don't, the local developments here. But the burials show how they were worn, and they were mainly uh, in necklaces. So in the burial sites, they are still with the people as they would have worn them? Yes, they are, as necklaces, because later in later Māori times, they didn't wear necklaces. They wore ear pendants and single pendants at the neck. But in... The Wairau Bar burials show that these early Polynesian arrivals actually wore necklaces of multiple units, sometimes up to 22 or 23 individual units in a necklace. So it's the type of jewellery that confirms that this was one of the earliest sites of settlement. What about the materials that they made them from? 
In eastern Polynesia, they're using mainly whale tooth and they're shaping it to look like teeth, uh, smaller teeth, maybe about five centimetres long, and you'd get 20 to 22 of these units around the neck of someone. And we know that from a site in Mopiti in the Society Islands where another burial site was found that people were wearing them as necklaces. So to have a parallel in New Zealand in Wairau Bar where there were 44 burials found in total, less than 20 of them actually have grave goods associated with them. I guess one of the early transitions, you know, if you look at a site like Wairau Bar, one of the early transitions would have been to move from using whale bone to using moa bone. It would have been an easier resource to get. Is that what you see? I suspect that when Polynesians arrived here that there were beach wrecks um, which they would have been able to mine for whale bone and whale tooth. But the moa bone offered an enormous opportunity, especially the large denonas um, with thick walls and the, and the leg bones. So they could make these quite chunky-looking reels from the leg bones of, of moa. They had the hole already drilled through them, the marrow cavity, and they were just able to cut them into segments and shape them on the outside. And is that what you see in the in the collection from Waraba? Yes, there are um, the majority of the large reels are made from moa bone at Waraba. I'd been doing a lot of field work up in New Guinea, and going out into the Louisiana archipelago, and so on. it was actually quite hard to get around from island to island. You had to wait until the canoe was going, and so I decided to take my own yacht, and so we filled the boat up with food and as we ate our way through the food we you know collected archaeological material i took the boat through the louisiana archipelago and i actually went up there to study a trading network but on the way i just happened to sail up to fiji and then across the islands of melanesia and i realized i was retracing the route of the first lapita colonists and so i began to think you know what would it have been like for them and actually, it was pretty easy for us because we were, once we got up to the tropics, we were sailing with the trade winds, and it was easy to slip from island group to island group. We could see the high land as we approached it. I realised how very easy it would have been for explorers who were exploring from west to east to return. It was the ease of return that made upwind exploration safe. So they were able to explore yeah. without any instrumentation or anything just by knowing the sky at night and knowing east to west and basically knowing where they've come from. They would have known the sky and they would have known that if you move north or south, the sky changes. But if you sail east or west, it's time that changes, not the configuration of the sky. So if you go off to sea searching... You really only have to return to a familiar sky to be able to intercept your own island. My feeling was that the Pacific had been explored by people who had a, a strategy of exploration and return. And colonisation followed. So exploration preceded colonisation. That just seemed like a rational idea to me as a sailor. I firmly believe that one-way voyages into the unknown, it's fine if there's an island there, but it's suicidal if there isn't. And there's a lot of empty ocean out there and just how much attrition was there.
We now know that the site, the intact portions of the site, um, are probably about 11 hectares in size. So that's a lot bigger than we anticipated. In fact, we've learnt two major things about the basic overall size and shape of the site. The first is that it's a lot bigger than we anticipated. The second is that the material in the site is much more intact than we had thought. It had always been assumed that the site had been ploughed from the early um, 20th century, during the early 20th century, and that that ploughing and the subsequent fossicking of the site by other archaeologists or amateurs had destroyed most of the record. In fact, that's not the case. What that uh, previous work seems to have done is remove a layer of artefacts, the more obvious artefacts from a certain portion of the site. But in fact, there's a lot of the site still intact, and as you move deeper below the plough zone, there's a lot of information about the houses, the structures, the um, living areas, the um, work activities, manufacturing zones, etc., are very much intact. From what you've seen, can you describe the the houses, what they looked like? It's a village site, and a village is a place where a community lives. All of the people are engaged in the everyday domestic activities that you would expect to find in a community. So there's the dwelling areas, there's work zones, manufacturing zones, cooking areas, food preparation areas, communal spaces, private spaces, and presumably spaces that are available to sectors of the community, men, women, etc. So that's the difference between a village and a specialised site like a campsite or a processing site, um, a gathering site, a garden site, etc., where you only have a small range of activities. Wairabar is a village, and we find in Wairabar all of the activities that you'd expect to find within the domestic space of a community. So you mentioned food preparation. Would you be able to determine that that was in fact the site through middens, through leftover from the food preparation? Yes, there are food preparation zones and food discard zones, places where people have thrown the um, remains from uh, the kitchen waste, if you like. And these are the middens, yeah. What sort of bones do you find in there? We find the bones of virtually every type of animal that was ever eaten in New Zealand. So... Uh, when people arrived in Wairabar, it was in the early 1300s, so it was a pristine environment. It was uh, an environment that contained a very wide range of um, birds, forest birds, marine birds. Um, examples of many of those are found in the middens. Then there are sea mammals, obviously very um, prevalent along the coastlines in those days, and of course moa, a lot of moa, a lot of shellfish, different uh, range of shellfish, many shellfish that are not really readily available there at the moment, and fish. So it's just about everything you can imagine. And they would also, of course, have been practicing agriculture. So they would have had kumara gardens uh, somewhere in the vicinity. You've also discovered a few sites that hint at ceremonial use. And I'm thinking here of this large hangi that was larger than perhaps just food preparation for day to day meals. What do you make of that? 
there's at least six of those features that we know of in the site, and we've excavated about a 25% portion of one of them. They're large stone-lined hungi pits that measure five to six metres across, and they've, they've um, been filled in with uh, midden remains, we believe from single cooking events. The stones that line these hungi have been exposed to extraordinary heat. They're very altered by the heat, so we can see that in the stones. And we've done various types of analyses on the material from within the, these features that um, allow us to argue, make a strong argument, that the food remains are from a single event, not an accumulation of material over time. So simply the size of these features and the scale of the food remains leads us to think that these are communal activities. And whenever you have large-scale communal activities like this involving food preparation in Polynesian communities, you're usually talking about some type of ceremonial activity. Possibly tangi? Possibly. could be anything, really. Um, tangi could be to do with um, chiefly succession. It could be to do with um, marriage. It could be to do with some type of um, seasonal events that we don't have any record now. These are Polynesians. They've come from tropical Polynesia, and we can't assume that the ceremonies and practices of modern times are the same as the ones that they would have had in the 1300s. The way you describe the village, though, it seems like a very established village. So are we still thinking that this was the first arrival, the first people who stepped ashore, or is it the first settlement, possibly second and third generation of people? What we believe is that people came from Hawaii, they moved around the coastlines very quickly, and within a few years, within the first generation, Wairaba emerged as the largest settlement within a very dispersed community around the coastlines of New Zealand. So some of the people at Wairaba were probably born in the islands. But saying it's the first village doesn't really mean anything in that context. It's probably the first large village, and during the early 1300s it was probably the most important village. It was probably a central place for um, the the colonising communities of New Zealand, but I'm not really sure it was necessarily the landing place or the first settlement in that sense. Do you have a sense of how many people lived there? I haven't excavated enough of the site to gather a really clear picture of that, but I would imagine we're talking a couple of hundred people. We have now processed about 30 of the samples, and we've been able to get DNA out of at least 18 of those to the point that we can call uh, a haplotype or what lineage um, it might belong to. Some of them have proven to be beautifully preserved, and what we're hoping to do is move beyond the mitochondrial genome to looking at the nuclear genome to sequence the entire genome. Um, We think that there may be enough endogenous DNA or samples that have good enough quality DNA that we can get a whole genome sequence. Um, And then we're also going to try what they call SNP testing, so looking for particular known markers um, that we can amplify maybe out of small, more degraded um, samples from the nuclear genome. So, um, again, we found more variation than than initially was thought. We're seeing quite a lot of variability within what was seen to be a single type, the Polynesian motif, as it was often um, described. And so 
all of the studies that are looking at, at the complete mitochondrial genomes are showing that in the Pacific there's more than just the Polynesian motif. There's quite a lot of variation within the motif that might help us track to particular island populations or at least link particular lineages. What does the finding so far mean for this group of people who were here at Waroba at least at the end of their life? So, yeah. Are there family? Are there not family? Are they from different islands? At this point, we don't know if the Wairabar, Koiwi, Tangata are from different islands. What we can say is that so far, some of them are connected through their maternal lines. So some of them share the same mitochondrial DNA sequences and lineages. But this is not in the old kind of stories that people would hypothesize, oh, you have a family group of, you know, that, that got into a canoe and pushed off and landed on the shores, and in which case it'd all be related, you know, sisters and their husbands and so forth. If that were the case, you would only find one mitochondrial lineage. The fact that we're finding in, you know, the small sample that we've actually analyzed, multiple mitochondrial DNA lineages, they're all Polynesian. They're all lineages that we see in East Polynesia. We see these same lineages in Hawaii and Tahiti in the Cook Islands but they're not directly related maternally. So they're not brothers and sisters exclusively or aunties and, and their nieces and nephews. We're seeing a number of lineages, which indicates that the founding population was probably relatively large, certainly larger than the early studies that were just looking at a small portion of the mitochondrial genome in modern Maori. They were estimating initially minimum of 75 women, then maybe 150 women, we're seeing that it's probably even larger than that. So we're so talking about a substantial, a substantial population. Hundreds um, of women? Hundreds of women. I feel fairly comfortable saying it was probably hundreds of women. Would you then think that they came at about the same time? Or are we talking about a window in time? From the DNA perspective, and given the time frame that we're dealing with, we can't answer that question. We have to look to the archaeology and to the archaeologists and what data they have. The fact that at Warabar we have archaeological material from across the country, we have archaeological sites appearing across the country that date to the similar time frame as Warabar. And the fact that we have diversity, that significant diversity in Marabar, my interpretation from that combination of data would indicate that probably at that period of time, within a generation or two, we're talking about a large founding population. We don't have the data to be able to assess whether some of the lineages that we see in modern Māori are coming in at a later point in time. But given the diversity that we see at Wairawar being such an early site, it's not just one canoe. <laughs> it's that population at Wairawar represents, I venture to say, at least several hundred females. Does the DNA help you to pinpoint Hawaii? Is it narrowing it down at all? It's hard to say at this point. Part of the problem is that we don't have a broad sample from East Polynesia as a whole. We've been through the Genographic Project increasing our Pacific sampling. And at this point, we might eventually be able to identify particular lineages that are only found on particular islands or in particular island groups or archipelagos. But at this point, we don't have that data. And what we find in New Zealand is a subset of what we find in East Polynesia generally. Who knows, as we say, technology is always changing. 
as we increase the sample size, we might actually be able to find mutations that are specific to particular archipelagos. We, we just don't know at this point. Is there anything in what you've seen so far in the genetics mm-hmm. of this movement through the Pacific, is there anything in East Polynesia that has a starting point, you know, something that you find only after a certain point? Mm-hmm. And if you, say, mm-hmm. found this in the Waraba people, at least you could point them yeah. to that juncture. Yeah. We do find, looking at mitochondrial DNA variation across the Pacific, that there are a number of lineages that so far we have only identified in East Polynesian populations. So we see them in Hawaii, we see them in Tahiti, we see them in some of the Cook Islands. We don't see them in Samoa, we don't see them in Tonga, we don't see them in Fiji. And so... What is the origin of those lineages? We don't know, but we do see those lineages in in Warabar, for example, and in modern Maori. So there are some mutations that appear to be specific, some lineages that appear to be specific to East Polynesia. And this also fits with some of the genetic data showing that East Polynesian populations, uh, my colleagues who are studying the genetics of gout, um, have shown that East Polynesian populations have different mutations from West Polynesian populations. So there's something, and and this is a, a question that I've been interested in for a long time, what's the relationship between the settlement of East Polynesia and West Polynesia? We know clearly that there are some shared lineages, so there's definitely, we can trace some of those lineages back through Hawaii, through Samoa and Tonga, back through Vanuatu, New Caledonia, and so forth. But there's some lineages that we don't trace to that Lapita homeland. And that's one of the questions that I'm particularly interested in is where did those lineages originate? It's unlikely, given the distribution and the frequency, that they originated in East Polynesia. There's just not enough time for that variation to have accumulated and and only be found in East Polynesia. Um, So this is really where it all began, um, because buried here is Auntie. And Auntie was uh, one of the first uh, that was uh, dug up and taken away. Uh, the science that has added the value to our whakapapa, our stories, has strengthened all of our stories. And we hope that the kōrero that we have added to science um, has strengthened that science as well. This is not just about us. That while we wanted to repatriate what we now know is from the time that man climbed out of the Rift Valley in Africa and started populating the world. This is the last place on earth that was populated, and these are the people that did that. And that was Judith MacDonald of the Rangitane Iwi. At the start of the piece, you also heard Rangitane members Richard Bradley and Waraubar Kaikiaki Wayne Abbott. The science team from the University of Otago includes archaeologist Richard Walter and anthropologists Halle Buckley and Lisa Matisu-Smith. And you also heard Auckland Museum Curator of Māori Collections Louise Furley and University of Auckland archaeologist Jeff Irvin. And if you have a look at our webpage, you'll find a video about Wairau Bar, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.